today on Ag News Daily. I have taken it very, very seriously to be involved on behalf of our members. Now we're using it more as a demonstration farm where we have people that come in, we have... Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Delaney Howell here on the Ag News Daily Podcast, flying solo again today. I am actually sitting in the airport in Orlando, Florida. Had a quick commodity classic session this morning. Got to talk to a couple of folks here down at the classic, but unfortunately have to head home. We've got market to market, of course, tomorrow. So I am at the airport. If you hear any background noise or some announcements, that is why. I've got to do it when I can. And I was... Not going to make it in time to my next layover flight, so I thought, here we go, we're going to do it now. Markets aren't quite closed yet for the day, so I'm going to probably opt out of doing those today. It looked like, though, when I was watching them today, soybeans down about six cents on the day, wheat down about eight and a half, corn about two cents. We'll see if they get a little bump here after the markets close or right before the markets close. Cutting right now about one o'clock central time. So markets, of course, close here in about 15 minutes if they do close before I finish up the news for today. I'll, I'll bust through those. But otherwise, folks, you know how to get a hold of those markets. DTN, bar chart, working with your brokers, going to skip those today. And actually, I'm going to skip them too, probably because there's a lot of news to talk about as we look at the stage of agricultural news. Going to kick it off here with some of the news going on in Washington, D.C. As I mentioned yesterday, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue was meeting with the House Agriculture Committee and told them that he didn't believe that the EPA was going to be able to wrap up the rulemaking for summertime E15 sales In time for the summer driving season, by that June 1st deadline, he he did say the USDA as well as the EPA were looking at other ways of, quote, discretionary enforcement, which would essentially allow parties interested in still selling E15 fuel year-round some ways to go about that, even though June 1st is technically the cutoff for gas suppliers. But a little bit of discrepancy because Andrew Wheeler said at his hearing, um, you know, to try and get voted into his official role as the EPA administrator, that they were going to get E15 in place. So it sounds like not on the same page here between the EPA and the USDA. The Senate voted on Administrator Wheeler on Wednesday with a 52 to 46 vote to advance his nomination and a final vote will happen this afternoon on the House floor as well. Later in the afternoon yesterday, Secretary Perdue looked like he was meeting with Administrator Wheeler and made some comments, especially on Twitter, uh, saying that maybe there was some discrepancy, but he didn't know for sure when the E15 rule was going to come out. They're still working together. So he kind of, it sounds like, backtracked a little bit on what he originally said about E15 not being around or not coming out in time for year-round sales. So that's something that we're definitely going to keep watching. But, I mean, I do think it just shows, you know, there's a lot of discrepancy in Washington, D.C. right now between agencies even as you see USDA and F and EPA weren't on the same page there didn't give the same notes on Capitol Hill in front of their different scheduling scheduled hearings that came out yesterday so also going on in DC this week representative Colin Peterson who is of course the House Ag chairman revealed at Purdue's hearing that he is working on a bill right now to essentially keep the farm service agencies open in the event of another government shutdown. His plan would fund FSA salaries out of the 
Commodity Credit Corporation, which is one of those funds that I believe they used some of the money from that to also fund MFP payments um, and are used in states of emergency. And when he brought this up to Secretary Purdue, Purdue apparently liked the idea, um, but Peterson acknowledged to reporters later on after the hearing that congressional appropriators object to exempting the FSA from a shutdown. And of course, Representative Peterson is from a very agriculturally productive state of Minnesota, so I think it's uh, in his constituents' interest and looks like he was really trying to push that forward. So we'll see if that ever makes it to the House and or Senate floor here in the future, but I think that personally that seems like a smart plan. I mean, we had so many farmers upset when FSA offices were closed. We had to see a lot of deadlines get extended, especially when you look at the MFP payments and whatnot. So working on that in Washington, D.C. as well. We had good news come out just earlier this morning. In reference to a a WTO lawsuit back in 2016, the United States filed a complaint against China saying that they doled out too much money in market price support for wheat, rice, and corn, essentially that they were giving too much money to their producers and helping them create an unfair and unlevel marketplace. So China, China doled out a hundred billion in U.S. dollars back in 2016, and then we saw, of course, that come to fruition at the Geneva-based WTO. So in 2016, we officially saw the U.S. bring that to the WTO, and a panel was established by the WTO's dispute settlement body to rule on this matter. They studied from the years of 2012 to 2015. They found that China's market price support for wheat indicated that it exceeded eight and a half cents uh, per level of support for each product. The WTO panel just came out Thursday and ruled in favor of the U.S. essentially saying that China did provide uh, more domestic support to its grain producers well in excess of its commitments under WTO rules and that they artificially raised those prices for grain producers above current market levels, creating incentives for increased Chinese production of agricultural products and reduced imports. Essentially, the next steps forward, both sides now have 60 days to appeal Thursday's ruling. China argued, of course, that it was not breaching that limit because only the grains procured by the government should be counted as subsidized. Uh, but the United States successfully argued that state buying at a guaranteed price affected the whole market. And after a committee meeting on Wednesday, the United States and Canada rejected India's claim that its market price support for pulses were 1.5% of the value of production, saying actually Canada and the United States said actually it's 31% to 85% above allowed limits. So we're going to continue to see those issues come to the forefront here, especially as we're working to level the playing fields on the international realm. In other trade-related news for today, we have seen Robert Lighthizer um, had hearings this week in Washington, D.C. as well. 
and said that U.S. negotiators have made it a priority to convince China to overhaul the way it approves new biotech traits. This, of course, has been a key issue in ongoing negotiations, and there's a variety of non-tariff trade barriers that the U.S. wants China to address, but biotech is one of the largest that they've spent the most time on over the past few months, which is part of what Lighthizer disclosed in some of his hearings this week in D.C. He said in the U.S. it's 18 to 24 months to get an approval, and in China it can take seven or eight years, and it has a very negative impact on the U.S. We spend a lot of time on it, so he said hopefully we make some headway with that. In relationship also to U.S.-Chinese trade negotiations, it seems like now rice is also going to be one of the bigger players here as we look at negotiations. It sounds like rice is going to be a major player along with soybeans and some other commodities, but Robert Lighthizer also said at his House Ways and Means Committee hearing on Wednesday that we are talking about rice in the context of the next purchases. So as we know, China recently lifted its ban on U.S. rice and approved several mills here in the U.S. to ship grain out of the country. That trade hasn't really started yet, but a a Chinese 25% tariff still remains in effect at this point in time. Robert Lighthizer also made one big announcement that I think has a lot of folks excited in agriculture. Lighthizer said while testifying at that House Ways and Means Committee uh, just yesterday that they are officially starting trade negotiations with Japan next month. The end of March is kind of the timeline they're looking for there to start negotiations for that bilateral free trade agreement with Japan. He said in his testimony that we feel a real urgency right now because of a combination of market access from TPP and from Europe and it's going to have a real effect on our farmers so a lot of commodities are going to be impacted by this trade agreement including pork and beef, wheat, other commodities so it does seem like ever since TPP or CPTPP has gone through we've seen Japan lower tariffs on other countries Australia, New Zealand, Canada for getting beef. And so this is just another piece of the puzzle here as we continue moving forward with trade negotiations. Uh, during his during his testimony, committee members also tried to press him on whether or not those Section 232 tariffs on Mexico and Canada on steel and aluminum would be lifted, kind of in the midst here of trying to get the U.S. MCA agreement signed and finished and ratified. But he did not give any comment or really provide any commitments on that topic. The final piece of news here, coming out of Washington, D.C., they're moving and shaking in D.C. We're going to see Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue speak tomorrow at the Commodity Classic Friday morning, but he's had a busy week this week in Washington, D.C. One of the other pieces of news, really, that he's talked about in some of these uh, testimonies and these hearings, especially in front of the House Agriculture Committee, he's put some dates in place or some target dates in place here for implementing the 2018 Farm Bill and saying, dairy producers, especially this one's for you, those first round of payments, those subsidy payments dairy producers could be expecting should be delivered in as early as July, he told lawmakers Wednesday during that meeting. He also said that the White House, in combination with the USDA, is working on a comprehensive immigration reform proposal. And uh, he said, you know, he said the USDA is having a really essential role in this as they're looking at not only foreign labor visa programs like H-2A, um, but also how to, you know, make a program that works for producers. So it sounds like that is also a top priority right now. 
for the USDA and whatnot, the Farm Service Agency. So besides the immigration and reform, going back to the implementation of the 2018 Farm Bill, there's a couple of key dates here for folks looking to utilize some of those programs addressed in the 2018 Farm Bill. The first is the agricultural risk coverage and the price loss coverage programs. Those are expected to start September 1st. And, of course, remember that it will be the first time farmers have the ability to switch between the programs since it was created in the Farm Bill in 2014. Um, most farmers are currently participating in the ARC program, but a lot are expected to switch to that PLC program. I think it might be important for us to have a, somebody on who really can talk about those differences between ARC and PLC as we head closer to that September 1st deadline. Beginning in 2021, Purdue is expecting farmers to be able to switch between those two on an annual basis. Uh, other, pipe, other things coming down the pipeline, as I mentioned, the dairy margin coverage program. Payments are expected to start as soon as July 8th with the overhauled version of the margin protection program on June 17th is when folks can start to assume to get some payments from that. Another one here rolling out with the 2018 Farm Bill, not a new program, but the CRP or Conservation Reserve Program general sign up for that won't begin until about December and about 22 and a half million acres are currently enrolled in the program and they're putting a cap in this year raising it to 24 million acres so I'm sorry it was raised to 24 million in the 2014 farm bill the 2018 farm bill increases that ground to 27 million acres by 2023 so a lot of farm bill provisions aren't expected to take place until 2020 planting seasons but they are certainly working to get some of those pieces implemented as soon as possible. As I mentioned, that's all the news I'm going to share with you guys today. We've got a couple of great pieces coming from our field reporter, Bruce Gorder. First interview I'm going to kick it off to Bruce with here is with Terry Detrick, who is a longtime advocate for agriculture and a leader in agriculture in Oklahoma and the Southern Plains, also retiring as the president of American Farmers and Ranchers. He's got a long list of accomplishments, so I'm going to kick it off to Bruce and let him fill us in on the rest. A major farm organization in the Southern Plains is undergoing a change at the top. American Farmers and Ranchers, part of the Oklahoma Farmers Union, is getting a new president. I had a chance to visit with outgoing President Terry Dietrich and asked him for a snapshot of the group. Well, uh, Bruce, we started 114 years ago. Uh, two years before Oklahoma was a state, it was Indiahoma. And uh, two years before a state, we, we had 10 men form a cooperative. And the name of it was Indiahoma Farmers Educational and Cooperative Union of America. All right. That's, what, that's the long name of all the states that have a farmers union cooperative in them. Now, in years past... Uh, we just became known as Oklahoma Farmers Union. We evolved into an insurer, having an insurance benefit for our membership uh, just by the good heart of our cooperative members saying, let's put a little money in a, in a pot, and when one of us have a disaster, we'll uh, have some money to help them out. Well, eventually that evolved into, before we ever had an insurance department in the state of Oklahoma, that evolved into a rating system. And we would take 75% of whatever somebody, whatever asset they wanted to insure. And that has grown until today. Uh, 
and we did buy an insurance company that had some licenses outside of the state. We thought we might be able to expand outside of Tornado Alley. We're just now able to do that a little bit, just over the boundaries of Oklahoma, but uh, to the south primarily. But uh, uh, today we serve about 130,000 people in the state of Oklahoma. And out of all of our membership, over 95% of them are insured. So uh, uh, it's been a great ride. Uh, I was first elected to the board of directors 33 years ago. 20 years ago, I became a full-time executive vice president here in the company. And then 10 years ago, I became president. And... uh, We are a general farm organization. I have taken it very, very seriously to be involved on behalf of our members in whatever area, whether it be rural government, county government, whether it be their commodities, whatever. uh, We need to be there. We have a policy that our members give us, and every year we renew it. And our upcoming convention at the end of this week is going to be the chance for our membership to go through, update our policy and what we stand for. And uh, I've always jokingly said it's uh, basically kind of like baseball motherhood and apple pie. (laughs) Uh, But uh, they will review that, and once they approve it again with changes, that's the marching orders that our administration is to march to. Now, Oklahoma is a, a big state. Uh, a lot of uh, you cover a lot of ground down there, known primarily, you know, out of Oklahoma with uh, for uh, gas and oil, of course, and uh, for cattle and for wheat. Uh, but boy, it's it's a lot more than that. So you've got a variety of members, don't you? We do have a variety, and it is a more than a full time job. In my parting remarks uh, from the president to our convention. Uh, I've challenged the future leadership not to depend on being able to get their job done in an eight-hour day, five-day week. You just can't do it, and if you don't have the passion for it, it'll wear you down. I have been blessed. It's not been a chore for me. When I am tired, I'm thankful for being able to be tired. When I'm busy, busy, I'm glad I'm able to be. Absolutely. Now, you work a lot, I'm sure, uh, talking with legislators and w- with the administration there in Oklahoma. Uh, how does that work for you? Is are are they are they do they listen to what you uh, what you are bringing to the table? And is it a good uh, uh, give and take as far as conversation goes? They are very receptive, and I'm very fortunate to be a part of a close knit leadership group of all the major ag organizations in the state when the legislature's in session we uh, we try to have uh, lunch once a week Uh, when they're not in session it's much less often but many times we have to agree to disagree but we can do it without being disagreeable And we know that each one of us is governed by the policy that our membership gives us. And we respect each other for that. But most items, I would say uh, 90% of the time, 
we've all got the same end results in in mind, maybe even more more higher percentage than that. But when we all go to the Capitol working on the same things, and I, we do have uh, AFR, OFU does have a full-time lobbyist that uh, represents us and keeps up with things on a daily basis at the state capitol. And, uh, but when we go in unison, they know to listen. Yes, oil and gas is the number one economic driver in the state, uh, agriculture number two. And uh, when I talk to someone telling them that I'm representing 130,000 uh, in excess of 130,000 of their constituents, uh, they, it kind of gets their attention. They tend to listen to that, don't they? <laughs> they do. Well, that's uh, that's that's to their uh, benefit for sure. Now, now you've got you know you mentioned uh, with your organization, you've got the, the cattle producers, you've got the wheat producers, you've got the cotton producers. Uh, when they have a convention, they they're pretty focused on their own group, but. When you get together, you've got to support and uh, and get together with all those folks, don't you? We do, and when they have their meetings, I try my best to be present because in our organization, if we were to divide our membership up with the different commodity interests that they have, we have more members who produce that particular commodity than that state commodity organization has as a total membership. Consequently, I need to be at their meetings to learn how to represent our members. What are their issues that are producing various commodities in the state? So, uh, yeah, it's a broad range uh, duty that I have and uh, our organization has. And... uh, Boy, I made a lot of great, great friends. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's been a good ride. Terry Dietrich has been a strong advocate for agriculture for many years now, and I have a feeling that that will continue. For Ag News Daily, I'm Bruce Gorder. Our second interview for today, before I get into all our commodity classic news the rest of this week and next week, is another field report from Bruce Gorder, and that's with Tim Recker, who is with the Iowa Land Improvement Contractors Association, otherwise known as LICA. And among his many projects, he is working with the association, working with landowners on conservation products, especially to improve water quality, as that's a key issue in Iowa and many agricultural states. So now we're going to kick it over here to Tim Recker. Talking with uh, Tim Recker, and Tim is uh, a member of the Iowa Land Improvement Contractors Association. Tim, for those of us uh, not familiar with the group, uh, give us a little snapshot, if you would. The Iowa LICA is probably one of the best-kept secrets in Iowa, and not by chance, Bruce. It's it's a group of contractors, uh, an association of 500 members, and these guys like to make conservation structures on Iowa working soil. That's what they love to do. They love to be in excavators, bulldozers, and like to install permanent structures on Iowa working land, our cropland. So tell us about some of the projects, Tim, that you have been involved with and, and the uh, the association in general. Well, the association, um, I got involved 
uh, in the early 2000s, and right at that time, uh, we purchased an 80-acre farm. And little did we know that we bought this to have it to be our own personal sandbox so that every every other year or every year we could have projects. So our associates would bring in, you know, lots of machinery, and we would have a project. So we started out by building wetlands, and we built a crep wetland, which is a larger structure. And then uh, the following year, we did uh, grass waterways. We always did tiling demonstrations, put underground subsurface drainage, and we would build terraces, waterways. Uh, a, a rain garden was put in for our building, which was kind of a project that maybe isn't really conventional with these contractors, but it was kind of a neat project to do. So everything from sediment basins to to, to wetlands, and lately, in the last few years, we start concentrating on edge-of-field practices. So they would be the bioreactors, the wood chip bioreactors, and uh, the uh, water control structures. So along with all those practices, the edge-of-field practices, such as a wood chip bioreactor, and saturated buffers have become real popular. So we've really used this farm as a training center for our contractors so that when they're asked by the customer, hey, we, we want to put in some good soil and water practices, what can what can we you recommend? These guys are already trained and ready to go and ready to install these practices on, on the ground. Now, farmers in general have, have always been stewards of the land as, as best they could. I mean, after all, farmers live right there. They live right on the land. They drink the water. But recently, it's really been ramping up uh, with the Iowa nutrient management uh, strategy and things like that. Is this the kind of thing that uh, that your members are working with? That's exactly what they're working for. So with this 80-acre farm, these guys thought they were just training, and they just thought that we were learning how to build structures. Little did we know that water quality was going to be such a big deal. So now the farm, since we've put in almost every conceivable conservation practice known to man, at least that's what I say, now we're using it more as a demonstration farm where we have people that come in. We have visitors from D.C., overseas visitors, a lot of our uh, policymakers in, in Des Moines, and we invite them out to show them what could take place on an Iowa farm. This, and all the structures are there so they can visually see. If I'm thinking about doing a terrace, a grass waterway, or a pond, I want to see what that's going to look like, see how it works with this farm. And what I like to call the Lyca farm is really an agricultural water treatment facility. Uh, we, we test the water there. We know, because Iowa State does the testing of our water coming into, into this farm and what leaves the farm, that the water coming in, that contains sediment, nitrogen, phosphorus. It comes in and it leaves our farm cleaner than when it came in. And with that kind of testing, it's a real um, well, it's a pat on the back for us to say, yeah, we, we built structures here because that's what we like to do. But we did it for other reasons that we know that water quality is the end game. That's what we really want to prove that this farm, um, and we can we can duplicate this farm anywhere in Iowa. We can put these practices to work any quadrant of Iowa. Uh, some, some, some places will use different practices, but they're all pretty much in this one location. 
Tim, are you using proven practices from the past, or, or are you all learning new things, new new ways to do do a better job of this uh, as you go along? Well, that's the kind of exciting thing that's happening. Technology in agriculture, it's been no secret. I mean, we're utilizing technology in my farming operation every day. Um, the contractors are also starting to see, in the last few years, their technology in the seed has even become just as good as the agricultural stuff. So they're relying on GPS to do a lot of the uh, a lot of their work for them. They can have three designs that uh, can be loaded in a machine, and that machine will will make that design the way it is. We work directly and closely with partners such as NRCS for for designs uh, with private individuals we want to make sure we have a good design we just don't go out there and just start digging there's a there's quite a bit of planning that goes on um and of course if there's if there's uh if you want to look at cost share that design is really important so we work with both um, public and private organizations to provide us good designs and then um our field days, we, we implement those designs, and we invite the people out to to come see those machines work, um, talk about what we're putting in, and um, and when we're completed, and we're getting completed with the farm, and so that's why we're now we're kind of transitioning to more of a training farm so that we can help our contractors with um, safety training. Um, last year, we did a pipeline, a mock pipeline explosion that um, guys could see what hopefully nobody ever has to live through that if they use uh, if they use their one call numbers and make sure that they're always aware of underground utilities but it was really telling to see how long it would take for people to show up on the site and what needs to be done for the safety of the people not only the contractor but the safety around it so it was a great, great demonstration so we try to expose our members to that kind of thing uh, we do trench safety so that if a lot of times we're working underground and there's things we have to be aware of to make sure that we're in a safe environment so um, we do a lot of that at the farm and uh, along with putting in these practices we want the lica contractor to be the best educated contractor out there so if someone's looking for a, a project uh, hopefully they pick an, a land improvement contractor to finish it for them. All right, Tim, if somebody wants more information on the Iowa Land Improvement Contractors Association or wants to get in touch with a contractor or one of your members, uh, where can they go? Uh, the best place would be is to go to our website, IALICA.com, and that gives all the information, uh, phone numbers, contact information, who's on our board, and it's probably the best way to get a hold of, of someone within the organization. Our thanks to Tim Recker with the Iowa Land Improvement Contractors Association, a great association doing great work for water quality in the state of Iowa. I'm Bruce Gorder for Ag News Daily. Well, folks, that does it for another Ag News Daily podcast. Tomorrow is Friday, so I'm going to have on another Friday guest. I believe tomorrow will be Elaine Cobb. So do stay tuned in tomorrow to hear what Elaine has to share. I'm sure she's going to have some weather stories for us, perhaps. I've seen on her social media that they've definitely gotten a lot of snow up there as well. So, folks, if you'd like to guest co-host again, 
I'm going to remind you to shoot me a message on our Twitter and Facebook platform at Ag News Daily. Otherwise, with that, I'm going to let you all go.